Would you join me in reading God's good word this morning from 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. What does it mean to wait and to hope? I was with friends and, and one, of, one of my friends was uh, praying before the meal. And she prayed a very honest prayer. She said, Lord, just let this Christmas be bearable. Right? That's really honest. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of can we get from this day to the next? Can we get through this season? When I was a little child, I, I, I liked to, to, to look forward to Christmas. And I like to say that I waited and hoped, but honestly what I was doing was wishing and hoping. Right? Wishing for all the good things I thought would come my way under the Christmas tree on Christmas morning. And, and you know how you play that game with kids sometimes? You say, what do you want for Christmas? You've got to be really ready for the answer. My grandparents said that to me. We all lived together. My parents, my grandparents, my brother and me, we all lived together in one house when I was growing up. And my grandparents leaned over to me and they said, what do you want for Christmas? And I gave them an honest answer. See, my granddad had two brothers. I called them my unks. And they both lived in an institution. That's what people called it back then because they were developmentally disabled. That's the polite language we use now. That wasn't the ugly word that people used to describe them back then. And, and, and we would get up on Saturday mornings and we would get in the car and we would go see them. And that kind of ruined things for me on Saturdays when I want to be out with my friends playing baseball and stuff. So when my grandparents said to me, what do you want for Christmas? I said, I'd like to skip seeing my unks for a month. Now, my granddad had been their caretaker for many, many years. There was two brothers. He was a kind and merciful man. And he just stared at me kind of dumbstruck. My little English granny, though, who weighed about maybe 90 pounds and was about that tall, she schooled me. She said, do you know that your two unks have been made fun of all their lives? When they were in school, they never had a friend. They never had a party at school. They never got to go to a dance. They never got to play baseball or anything like that. They were left alone by themselves most of their life. And when they weren't alone, people were making fun of them because of the way they are. And they like to have a little bit of joy in their lives. And you're the only child in their life. Let me tell you, when she was done, I was begging to go. I wanted to go there every day for the rest of the year. And I can remember going that time before Christmas, and I had some little Christmas presents my grandma had helped me wrap. 
And I went in and presented to them. They were always so kind and so sweet. They were just different. And the place was different. And the adults there acted different. It made me uncomfortable. But, but I went in, I presented my little gifts, and they had a gift for me. They brought me this little package, and I opened it up, and there was a box, and it had something on, on it that I couldn't understand what it was, so I tore off the cellophane paper, and I opened it up, and it was candy, chocolate-covered cherries. And they were so delighted to give it to me and so happy to give it to me. And people who know me really well will tell you right now that even today, uh, Christmas and Advent doesn't start for me until I get a box of chocolate-covered cherries, right? I've had one every week so far of Advent, and I'm (laughs) going to see it through, right? But I always remember what one of my great uncles said that day. He said, we were waiting And we were hoping you would come. That's the real story of of where we are right now. We're, We're in a world filled with people who are waiting and hoping for some act of kindness. Some someone to show that that they matter. That they're not forgotten. That that even if they're not loved, some of them wouldn't even think of asking for that, to just maybe someone will be kind to them. We're also in that season where we, once again, are waiting for the coming of the Savior of the world. And those two things cross and collide in these moments. The promise of the coming of the Savior, both at Christmas and in the future. And a world that is waiting and hoping that things can be better. We've been studying the book, The Almost Christmas, and it's a wonderful book based on the Advent season. It's, it's, it, it harkens back to a time when many people in the world couldn't read. And so the church developed these powerful symbols to teach with. For instance, the, the, the two uh, candles that you see on the altar the divinity and the humanity of Christ. That was a lesson to be taught. It comes out of part of what the church taught about Christmas. These Advent candles that we light go back to a time when people couldn't read. They didn't have calendars. It was a way to teach the faith story and to help people prepare for that moment when that center candle would be lit. We know it was Christmas. And once again, we could celebrate Christ has come into the world. It's, uh, it's really a wonderful, wonderful study, I think. I love that, uh, that we're able to do this. It's based on a, a book. It's based on a sermon that John Wesley preached in Oxford in July of 25th of 1741. He was preaching at Oxford, where he preached often. And it was at a time when, when people were born into the faith. As soon as your baby was born, you trotted them down to the church. You got them on the church roll. They might not go back except to be, to be married and to be buried, but they were on the roll. And, and the world was a place where people were, were trying to be good, but they weren't really necessarily in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So John Wesley preached this incredibly powerful sermon about going from being almost a Christian, you know, being a good person, trying to do good stuff in the world, to being an altogether Christian, someone totally committed to Christ. And that's what this Advent study is, is based on. And each week we go through one of the candles and talk about that element of faith and how to become altogether committed to it. 
So this Sunday, we're talking about what is an altogether hope? What does it mean to be fully committed to hope in a world that's filled with, with people who are waiting and hoping for just the slightest kindness? Just some small sign that good things can still happen. So we'll do a little bit of a word study this morning. I hope you'll stay with me. I hope you'll enjoy it. I want to teach you a word. I'm going to say it. You can say it back to me. It doesn't mean anything bad. You're going to be fine, okay? Tikva. Now you can go to Hanukkah with your friends and you'll have, you'll have one word that you know in the Hanukkah celebration. Tikva is the Hebrew word for hope. The Hebrew word for hope. Isn't that a great word? It's really important in Scripture. It's really important in the Bible. It's really important in our faith and, of course, in the faith of our Jewish friends in their faith as well. It means a cord, an expectation, and hope. That's what the definition is. And you may say to yourself, that doesn't really seem to go together. But remember, in English, it's a phonetic language. We take sounds and put them together and make a word and say, this is what the word means. Hebrew is different. It's a pictographic language. So there are little pictures all lined up. Those things you see that look like the Hebrew alphabet, if you look them up today, they're pictures. They're put together. So things work differently in Hebrew. It can mean both cord, expectation, and hope. The root word will help us. The root word kava means to bind together, to be tied to something, to be tied to hope. It comes from a, a story in the Bible. We always look at when we're trying to understand words, in, in particularly in Hebrew, we always look for that first story in the Bible where it comes from. And it comes from the story of Rahab. If you remember that story, some of you learned it in Sunday school as kids, some of you learned it in adults, some of you weren't allowed to learn it at all, right? You remember the, the time setting. Moses has led the people out of Egypt. He's no longer with them. Joshua has taken over. Joshua has this big job ahead of him to, take, to go into the promised land, Canaan, where the Canaanites live, and to capture the city of Jericho, which is a big fortified city. And he's very nervous about it. And he's frightened about it. And he sends spies in to go into the city and look at the fortifications like any good military general would do. And so these spies go in, and I'm sure as a part of their job, they go to the local house of prostitution, which I'm sure they thought, well, this is where we can get good information. This is a place where people drink a lot and talk a lot. And while they're there, the word gets to the king of Jericho that there are spies in the city, and he sends his troops out to go through all the places in the shady part of town and find the spies. And these guys are in big trouble, big trouble. Big trouble. And Rahab, who's a prostitute there, saves them. She protects them. Very interesting when you think about what happened in Israel recently. On a day when so many horrible things happened, part of the untold story there is that many Arabs, Muslims, on that day rescued Jews and saved dozens of Jewish people in the part of Israel that borders Gaza. Think about that and you go back to this story where, where here is Rahab who is a Canaanite, the bitter enemy of the Jews. She saves these two Hebrew soldiers. 
She hides them and protects them. In fact, she does this really kind of amazing thing as, as the scene develops. Here are all the, 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 the leaders of, of, of what will become Israel, the Jewish soldiers, and they're all terrified. Joshua's afraid. They're all afraid. But Rahab stands up and proclaims God, the one true God. And she says, I know that God will give you the victory. She pledges her heart to God. And the soldiers say to her, well, well here's what you do. We're going to protect you. Gather all your loved ones in your home and go to the window and, and put up a red cord there. Only, only that's the word in English. In Hebrew, they tell her to put a tikva in the window. They say when the day of the battle comes, you'll be protected by the tikva. And if you think about that, what a powerful, powerful image. She said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away and they departed and she tied the crimson cord, the crimson tikva in the window. It's a sign of faith. It's a sign of incredible hope. And you can imagine Rahab, who was really a slave, who was living an abusive and horrible kind of a life, there every single day, looking in that window, seeing the tikva, the cord of hope, knowing she was bound, she was tied to hope. And when the day of battle came, she and her family were saved. And the hope was fulfilled. Now, St. Peter's audience would have known that story in the depths of their heart. Peter is writing to, to, to Jews who have been dispersed out of Israel. They've been driven out of Israel into what we would call Turkey today. That area, they were old Roman provinces. And they were there as refugees. They had lost their homes. They had lost their life savings. They lost everything that gave them security. They had found some connection in a new faith led by someone named Jesus. So Peter begins to speak to this refugee community who are being attacked and put down because of who they are. Not, we don't think physically, they weren't being imprisoned, but they were being kicked out of their communities. They were being kept from, from shopping and working and buying food and going through just all kinds of things that come out of prejudice. And so Peter, in, in 1 Peter 1 through 3, he says this, or you can read along with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And when Peter said that phrase, living hope, that is a hope that is alive, every person in his audience would have said, Tifa, Rahab. Once Rahab had nothing, and God gave her a promise and hope, and everything changed for her. And now those of us who are in this difficult and hard place, we can have hope too. And you break down what Peter said, and it's really, really powerful. First, 
That promise comes by God's great mercy. You hear that? By mercy. Not by what we do, not by what we accomplish, or not in spite of what we haven't done or what we have not accomplished. It's not based on who we are. It's based on who God is and how much God loves us. God loves you totally and completely. The moment you're knitted together, the last breath you take in this world, God loves you totally and completely. And the gift of hope comes out of that mercy. He has given us new birth. Rahab was given a new life. She left her life as a slave behind, her life of being used and abused. In fact, she becomes a really important figure in the history of Judaism. She's the grandmother of Boaz who who marries Ruth, and that's another whole beautiful story. She becomes a part of of a tribe, of a people, of a faith, a community. Her life is changed. We too are promised. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, that God can lift us out of that and give us new life. We're, we live in a living hope. Peter says we're, we're given that into, we're, we're placed into a living hope. It's not something, it's not a piece of history. It's not something that happened long ago. It's a, something that happens right now and it's at the center of our lives. And you can ask, how, how can that happen? And Peter tells us, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, there's the heart of it, right? We have resurrection power. That's what we have. We have the power of resurrection in our lives. Because of what Christ did for us, because Christ himself laid down in death and rose up, because the stone was rolled away, because Christ conquered death and sin, we can experience resurrection in our lives both in the future and right now. Those dark places where we sometimes find ourselves, there's hope and there's light and resurrection power. And I love the way Peter sort of sums it up in in, in 1.4. He describes our living hope as an inheritance that is, say it with me, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's so powerful, isn't it? That's so incredible. Uh, imperishable, it can never die. Undefiled, nothing can ever, can ever break it up or make it less than. Unfading, nothing can ever take it away and kept in heaven. It's kept in the most sacred, holy, and eternal place. It's eternal. Nothing can ever take it away. Nothing can ever misshape it. Nothing can ever destroy it. Nothing can ever make it less. I just want to invite you to say those, those words that are in yellow again. Let's think about our hope. Our hope is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. The prophet Jeremiah said it in a powerful way, and I know a lot of you uh, love this verse, and I just can't resist but, but share it once more. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. That's what God is doing in our lives. God is working in our lives to reveal hope, possibility, potentiality for us. 
to open doors where, where all the doors seem closed, to provide new opportunities if we open our hearts and allow ourselves to see those things and to be spoken to. Now, there's a difference, John Wesley said, between almost hope and altogether hope. And lots of times in life, we're satisfied. We, we allow ourselves to, to get by with something less. We, we, we're almost hopeful. More like when I was a child and I was wishing for a new train or a new baseball bat. We're talking about something deeper than that spiritually. We're talking about going to the next level and being totally committed and believing in hope and trusting in it. The, the author of the chapter from the book we're studying that, that wrote the chapter this way, Ingrid McIntyre, when our book was written, she was leading a ministry to people who had lost their homes, many of them through a flood, a huge flood in Nashville. And she, she says it this way, which, which I think is really powerful. Hope, the real thing, breaks into seemingly strange and unexpected places. I love that. Breaks into seemingly strange and unexpected places, right? And that's just where Jesus is born. In, in a strange and unexpected place. To the poor. To the disenfranchised. In a manger. In a stable. I hate to admit this, but to be honest with you, the priest in the temple had been waiting for centuries for God's word to come to them there in the temple. But God's word became flesh, as the Gospel of John says, in a Bethlehem stable. That's where hope was born, in a strange and unexpected place. John Wesley said it this way, hope reminds it us, hope stands at a, almost hope, stands at a distance. Altogether hope dives into the darkness, bringing light. I think that's really important. Because you can see the difference between almost and altogether hope that way. That almost hope, that wishing kind of thing, it's sedentary. It doesn't move. It's stuck in one place. Altogether hope has movement. It's going somewhere. It's on a journey that's going to, that, that, that keeps it moving to new places and new opportunities and new possibilities. So I wonder, I'm going to ask you a question I have to ask myself. What strange and unexpected place is God calling you to right now? Where's that place in your life? Or maybe I could even say it this way. What strange and unexpected people is God calling you to minister to right now? Right? Right? I have to ask myself that question too. That's really important to get hold of. Because that's where we meet God. In those strange and unexpected places. Go to that place. That strange and unexpected place. Go to that person, that strange and unexpected person. And that's where you will experience hope. I found hope when I was six years old in an Oklahoma State institution for the developmentally disabled. I found powerful hope in that place. What happens when hope doesn't show up? Right? When you get stuck in that place and you're not moving, there's no motion. We call that despair. That's, that's what the Scripture teaches. 
Beware of that place where, where, where you, you give up on hope. You let go of it. Or you get so stuck in the what it's happening now and all the bad stuff that you can't see any way past it. The place is called despair. And it's a horrible place to stay. The blessings of, of being in a life of ministry and serving several different churches in Oklahoma uh, has been great for my wife, Prudy, and I. And one of those great places we served was Putnam City United Methodist Church. It's really, we still have close friends there and we love that congregation. Great, great people. We're still right now doing great ministry. And some of them will be watching today, I know. Uh, we love that church. But when we went there, it wasn't a great place. It was a church in despair. It was in real despair. The senior pastor that had been there for a long time took 1,300 weekly worshipers with him so out of three services and went and started his own church. And, and, and it left just a few people there with a massive debt. The next pastor came. He only stayed six months and gave up on them and left. So then Prudy and I got to go. <laughs> You should have heard that district superintendent's speech. Oh, it's a great opportunity, Robert. Lots of room there for growth. <laughs> right? And I can remember being in a meeting in that congregation. And some of the people watching will remember that meeting. I remember being in a meeting and we were trying to decide whether we could even keep the doors open. And we could even continue to do ministry. One year there, I buried 51 active church members. I mean, it was devastating. We went from, from 1,300 in worship to about 150 in worship in, in, in around a year or so. And we're trying to figure out if we could survive. And it became really clear that if we just focused on ourselves and on our problems, that we would die. I mean, if we just worried about keeping our doors open, keeping the electric bill paid, paying the interest on the mortgage, couldn't pay the principal. We just stayed focused on that. Just try to keep the doors open a few more years so that there'd be a church there for some of us to be buried in. A church would die too. So we made a commitment to altogether hope. And remember I said that hope moves. <laughs> it doesn't stay in one place. There was a thing that the Methodist Church had in Oklahoma had back then called Partners in Mission. And, and it, 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 after you paid all of your regular missional giving, you could give this extra gift to Partners in Mission. And the money collected there would go to start new churches in Oklahoma. I can remember sitting in a, in a meeting in Putnam City and, and talking about that offering. Talking about giving a gift partners in mission. And there were people who said, wait a minute, pastor, we, we got to pay our mortgage. Wait a minute, pastor, I don't know if we can pay our electric bill this month. I don't know if we can pay you, pastor, which gets your attention, right? <laughs> and we began to talk about it and process it and pray about it. We all came to a, a deep heart conclusion that, that in order to be hopeful, we had to risk something. And that's the heart of hope. You can't be hopeful and be safe. 
You can't be hopeful and, and, and hang on to, to what makes you feel secure. To be hopeful, you've got to tie the tikvah in the window. And you've got to wait and trust then that God will do God's thing in your life. And we took an offering. We gave all we could give. Widows, widowers, and older couples gave to build new churches. It was a very special kind of an offering. And it helped make this happen. This ground where Acts 2 started was purchased through that offering. As our church and churches from all over the state gave. They said, we, we believe in hope. We think that we need to go to a new part of the city and proclaim hope and promise hope and offer hope to the world. Pastor Mark and Chantel are gone today because this little guy right here is graduating from college and they're, they're at his graduation. So it tells you a little bit about the timeline, right? Yeah, incredible. It's incredible every time I walk up and see this campus and, and, and you're burning your mortgage, first mortgage there. It's incredible, right? You can't see it because the parking lot's hidden because it wasn't finished. It wasn't really a parking lot there, right? It's incredible to pull up and see this and see what God can do with hope. If you take a risk and you step out, and God longs to bring that kind of hope to you today. And I just want to illustrate that in one last simple way. I invite you to think about one thing. Remember, Rahab is in the Christmas story. You remember that? Go back to the Gospel of Matthew, and there's that, that whole series of, of lists of people who, who lead and, and are the antecedents of Jesus. And it's not a, a perfect family tree. It's not, you know, set up just right. It's set up theologically. It's a faith story. It's Matthew saying, these are the people whose spirits and souls made Jesus. The second woman on that list is Rahab. Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And the list goes all the way down to Jesus. Remember this year, as you're thinking about your perfect Christmas scene, you've got your family and your friends in that kind of nativity of, of the heart. If you feel like there's somebody just outside of that, just outside in the shadows, invite that person in. Because they'll be Rahab. And they belong in the Christmas story. Rahab is there to remind us the message of Christmas is a message of hope. So here are your action steps. First, ask where God is calling me to move from almost hope to altogether hope. I don't know where that is in your life, but you probably have thought about it already this morning. If not, pray about it. And find that place and take the risk and take the step. Remember, hope always involves movement. Second, of course, we invite you 
to do something really special, to commit yourself to All Together Hope by being a part of the Christmas offering. Our Christmas Eve offering, every penny goes beyond the walls of this church to, to do ministry in the world. You'll hear a great bit about that next week, but, but take that risk. Remember, this church is here because other Christians did that. And now it's our turn to step up and be a blessing and share hope in the world. Will you pray with me, please? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.